The Cozy Robot Show. Well, hey, Cozy Robots, it's me, Mike McCarg. So good to see you all tonight. Or if you're listening later on demand on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that's okay. We're glad you're here as well. But for those of you watching live on YouTube or Facebook or Periscope or Twitch or whatever new video platform came out in the last five minutes, it's so good to see you. I want you to know that if you leave comments while you're watching the program, we can see them. The team making the show uh, can listen to or, or see and respond to your comments. And that is also how you can send us questions as the show progresses. So wherever you're watching, just make sure you like and subscribe. And if possible, maybe leave a review to let us know what you think of the show. And uh, it is a team who makes the Cozy Robot Show. And it is my pleasure and honor right now to invite on screen with me, Victory Palmazano, executive producer of the Cozy Robot Show. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mike. Glad you're here. We, we, you. I mean, we always have to say hello like we weren't talking two minutes ago. I know. And also our social media like... manager, Grace Vaughn is here. Woo. Hi, everybody. And hello. now the gang's all here and we can relax. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yes. Breathe in, breathe out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get a spike of adrenaline every time we start the show, especially with the new fancy countdown with music. I just, I can't even handle it. I start dancing. I was doing a little kick. I saw that. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was really nice. So it's good vibes. That's what you all miss when the cameras are off, is me dancing to uh, hold music, basically. <laughs> Should we do a really quick poll and ask everybody about the blizzard? Yeah. Let's just start with a little participatory exercise. Everybody clear your mind. Just clear your mind. Clear your mind. And you have a task. And the task is going to be, I'm going to say a word, and then as quickly as you can, say what you think of. Like, to define that word for me, okay? Don't overthink it. Don't look at everybody else's answers. Just as quick as you can. When I say the word, type what that word means to you. And the word is blizzard. Go. What is blizzard? What is a blizzard? And we'll Don't talk think. We'll figure that out. Don't comment. think. think. Just comment. type. Just comment it. Just, Just boom, type, type it. Type your comments. And uh, we'd love to know what a blizzard is. Oh, wow. So, so many. Okay, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love the difference. So You're so right, Mike. You're so right. Oh, my premise my was gosh. that there would be a difference and probably geographical <laughs> about whether you immediately thought of a weather system. I never would. Or an ice cream I treat. Would. Ice I cream treat. <laughs> weather system. Weather system. One, right? I I, I'm in one right now. You're in. Yeah, I really am. What's How's, it like? Are you surviving? Oh, yes. Very well. I mean, uh, it, for those of you tuning in, if you've seen me before, you've possibly seen me coming in and out or too loud. And over time, I've evolved like a Pokemon to have better audio and, uh, and an Ethernet cord. <laughs> yes! There's a Pokemon wow. joke for you, Pokemoners. It was very validating. <laughs> now I know how Pikachu feels. But yes. Grace used hardwire Ethernet. It was super effective. Sorry. Yep. I know. Old, old very oh. exciting. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> it took me a long time, Mike. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I'm doing well. And uh, Victory, how are you doing? 
We're fine in Los Angeles. Not a blizzard. Not a blizzard. Uh, and we don't. <laughs> Like, we don't have a Dairy Queen around here, do we? No. I, there are some. There are some. Yeah, it's not LA. a thing here. Per capita chain restaurants, very low. So something that like, yes. like Tallahassee, a city of like a quarter million people, and L.A., greater L.A. of 10 million people, have a roughly equal number of Chick-fil-A's, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> they both have Chick-fil-A. That's where I'm from. But the number right. of people per Chick-fil-A... It's very different. This is true. Mm. So we've got Starbucks on every corner. Gosh, we do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, there's so much, like, the, the joke about like <laughs> Starbucks ran out of places to put Starbucks. And now they're putting Starbucks in the Starbucks bathroom. <laughs> right. It just right. lands. Like, it's true. That's good. So I love that. that. I feel like we got an equal amount of Dairy Queen and Snow and Blizzard. Like, it was. That was a good um, projection on your part, Mike. You're right. Interesting. No, the yeah. problem is that we can't cross-reference that data with points of geographic <laughs> origin. But this is true. I am at least right that the initial impression. Was <laughs> Everybody, type your coordinates. I'm kidding. Don't. <laughs> do not. It's no. the internet. Don't do that. Please don't no, do that. Yeah. If you could only <laughs> copy of your birth certificate, a photo like, next to your answer. Just really quick. Just you know, um, literally, no one. Please do that. Not even hesitate. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, what you can do is tune in for this part of the episode. That wasn't much of a transition. <laughs> but, um, uh, Mike, are you ready for some? silly questions to get started i mean yeah if you if we can still understand i'm very unlikely to answer silly questions with a silly answer <laughs> that's fine that's fine i think we've all come to accept that we've uh, come, yeah let's try it all right let's go kelly octopus on instagram Ooh, asks what a great name. i that's what i thought too star wars or star trek let's settle it lol this is not a silly question. This cuts to the heart of um, science fiction versus fantasy because Star Wars is not science fiction. There is no consistent, plausible explanation for the technology you see in the Star Wars universe. There has been a lot of fandom that has worked to create coherency where none exists narratively. Um if you're going for technical consistency or scientific accuracy, Star Wars might be one of the low watermarks in cinema history. And yet it is an epic story. It is Lord of the Rings in space. That's fine. I like the Lord of the Rings. It's cool to put it in space. Star Trek, on the other hand, puts an enormous amount of effort into creating uh, consistent mechanisms of actions for what happens on screen. They have extensive technical documentation. Star Trek is... Very popular, but um, relatively deep for not being super hardcore sci-fi. So um, I assume the question implies what is my preference, and there's no question that I like Star Trek much more than Star Wars. Also, while Star Wars sticks to a lane of kind of um, the hero's journey, any protagonist overcoming amazing odds, Star Trek is far more ready and frankly consistently ahead of its time when it comes to weighing in on matters of um, social issues and social challenges and social evolution. Uh, Star Trek more often makes timely critiques of the time we live in while casting a vision of what tomorrow could look like. So uh, if it's Star Wars or Star Trek, I'm going to pick Star Trek every time. 
That was amazing. And that would be really controversial, by the way. Every time I answer that question, there is a nerd fight in the comments. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it on. Bring it on. Nerd fight. Um, Okay, so the next silly question is, middle name Robert on Instagram asks, how plausible is it that we're in the matrix? Give me that epistemological dread, Mike. Wow, that's not silly at all. (laughs) That's a really serious question. Um, You know, given the ages of people who watch the program, uh, let's admit that there may be some people in the audience who've never seen The Matrix. So, uh, because that that film came out in 1999, which, wow, it aged well, considering its release date. The Matrix is a film, spoiler alert, by the way, so many spoilers about cinema on tonight's show. Just be ready if you hear a movie named and you haven't seen it, just mute until you see Grace come back and ask another question. Because <laughs> I'm going to be dropping spoilers left and right. And here comes one for The Matrix. In the film The Matrix, they say The Matrix can't be explained. You can only experience what it is. What it is is uh, a virtual world that's used to capture and keep humans in a perpetual semi-sleep state where the energy and heat energy their bodies produce can be harvested to produce electricity. That part, not so realistic. Human bodies do produce about 100 watts of heat energy uh, as we operate, but considering the amount of caloric input we require to create that amount of heat output, Uh, Human physiology is a terrible electrical generation medium. (laughs) It's a great metaphor. It's not plausible. So if the question is like, is the matrix plausible in terms of power generation? No. Is the matrix plausible in terms of what we call the brain in a jar theory? That basically if you took a brain and you put it in a jar and you hooked a lot of electrodes to it and you simulated the right electrical currents to simulate nerve currents, Could you make that brain in a jar think it lived in a real world? For a long time, we thought the answer was yes. As we're learning more about the brain-body systems of human beings, um, brain in a jar is not plausible. Why? Because our brain is part of an integrated system with our bodies. And you can't just replace the oxygen supply and nutrient supply of blood vessels and the electrical activity of nerves and think you're going to do anything significant. Our bodies also create hormones and neurotransmitters, especially are not confined to our brains. And the signaling we get from our world, a lot of it comes from our bodies. And so our our experience doesn't just live here in the noodle, in the gray matter in our skulls. We experience consciousness and awareness and presence using our bodies as well. In fact, if you look at evolutionary history, bodies existed, what, before brains. Brains are something bodies evolved to solve problems. So what I love about the matrix is they didn't try to put a brain in a jar. They put bodies in jars. And so what you see in that film is a depiction of basically a human body in a sensory deprivation tank, kind of suspended and fluid, kind of weightless, and then electrical chemical points of contact implanted all over the body, not just interfacing with the brain, although there clearly was uh, deep brain electrodes depicted in the film. In terms of a depiction of what it would look like 
to put a person fully into a computer-generated space and have it be an immersive, believable experience. I think the Matrix is closer to most things we've seen um, than exists in other cinema or science fiction. Uh, again, because they paid such attention to the body's role in participating, par participating, participating, I said wrong, participating is correct. Anyway, in participating in a virtual world. You know, when I, I love VR, I've got VR headsets, I just, I love to play VR. And that gives you a really immersive experience for your eyes and for your ears. And it's like, if you willingly suspend your disbelief, it can be very immersive, more immersive than gaming or cinema, certainly. But when you go to reach out and touch something or there's something that should have a smell associated with it, or when you're on a mountain blizzard top and you're actually sweating in your Los Angeles home office, it really creates that disconnection and reminds us the deep role that our body experiences play in shaping our understanding of reality. Now, if you did put a body in a sufficiently high-resolution system like that where you could emulate all of the electrical and chemical actions that came from a body interacting with the world, I actually think it is plausible that you could create a confinement system that people were in and did not know they were confined if they stayed there all the time. Now, certainly there's a lot of unsolved science there. There's a whole lot of unsolved engineering, but epistemologically, meaning how do we know what we know? How do we validate that knowledge is real and exists? The matrix is, in fact, plausible. So, I hope that was yeah, a very silly answer. Huh? So, Mike, what you're saying is I can bend the spoon? What I'm saying, Grace, is that there is no spoon. That's a deep Matrix reference. Super. That was good, Mike. That was that good. Was you really picked good. up the thread. <laughs> I threw you the thread and you knit a sweater for me. Thank you. I was a bit of a Matrix super fan. Um, so that probably wouldn't surprise a lot of people. I, I actually, and I'm one of the rare people who liked the whole trilogy. That's awesome. I'm one of them too. I, I love them. But I don't know if I was a super fan because you well, definitely would not with, uh, Deus Ex Machina, like, like literally God is a machine. That, but uh, it's still fun. Uh, speaking of science and movies, because I know these transitions are... No, it's, I'm not laughing at your transition. I'm, I'm uh, laughing at, at however I attempted to say Latin. I, I, don't, I can read. I, I don't, oh, I was, sure, was sure tracking with like, you. What did he just say? My version is Deus Ex Machina, which isn't much better. So I don't know. Someone's going to have to come on here and teach mm. us. Somewhere um, people the, taking Latin are dying. Oh, dead. They're, they're like, dead. Ah! they're dead. Type in the comments. Let us know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> oh man. All right. The second kiddo on Instagram asks, "Which movie science is the most broken?" What? Which okay, let me explain what I think it science is. Science is the no, I get it, but it's oh. like <laughs> Grace is like, I'm out, I'm done. Um, that's an impossible question. All of them, like the exceptional thing is when a movie even gets vaguely close 
on a depiction of science. The norm is for movies to butcher, absolutely butcher science. Um, let's uh, a very popular franchise. Of, I think the highest by revenue of all time. Uh, there's a man named Iron Man, and Iron Man wears a suit that covers his body made of some kind of incredible material. And uh, we'll see depictions in film all the time where people are in protective armor and they get hurled through the air and they hit against a brick wall. And because of their armor, they are protected. But we know through physics and biology, it doesn't matter what kind of suit you're wearing. If that armor hits that wall, even if the armor has enough structural integrity to avoid being damaged, your soft, fleshy body inside is going to be damaged by the armor itself because that energy is going to get transferred to your physical body. So although Iron Man's suit might be iron, Tony Stark inside that suit would be jelly. He'd be, he'd be gone, right? Anytime I see space travel depicted in films, it, from the, the simple matter of what it takes to lift off a planet, what it's like in orbit around a planet, what interplanetary travel would be like, what interstellar travel would be look like, these things are almost always so terrible that I have trouble watching the film. Anytime I see depictions of multiple dimensions or the multiverse, whenever I see depictions of time travel, whenever I see depictions of almost anything involving science, extreme weather, evolutionary biology, anything, man, I get ripped out of a film because the science is just bad. And this is common for people who are science literate. Why? Well, there's people who write stories. They're called writers. <laughs> That's what they do. Screenwriters. They write screenplays. Their job is not to educate you about science. Their job is to tell you a fun story and for you to enjoy it. The problem is more and more people are getting more sophisticated in their understanding of the sciences. They're understanding more and more about how, how science shapes our war, world. Why? Because they need to. A lot of us know a lot more about virology and epidemiology than we did a year ago. Why? Because a virus is killing people every day. A lot of us know more about the physics of climate change and the chemistry of climate change because we need to know that to survive. And plus YouTube, anybody who's interested can get on YouTube and get a really high caliber scientific education just by watching the things that scientists put out for free to educate the public. And so films get released and then they get skewered for bad science. So I can't name the worst science movie of all time. Oh, anything with giant insects, right? Like we know anything with an exoskeleton. Exoskeletons don't scale proportionally. They they become too heavy for the internal musculature to move. That's why bugs are small unless they're in the water and then they get a little bigger like a lobster. But there's an upper limit on exoskeletons. Like uh, I could go all night. One of my favorite things about my life right now is that I don't just host the Cozy Robot Show. I've had this amazing opportunity, I think because I've become known for talking about science in a way that is compelling and tells stories. And let's go back to those writers whose job is to entertain us. When they go to tell a story, 
they want to tell a fun story. And when they get out of their element, they tend to go to Wikipedia. They tend to go to YouTube like anybody else. They try to figure the science out and they still don't get it. And if they've got a budget, a lot of times they can call a university and talk to an expert in whatever they're trying to learn with the small caveat. That person really knows what they're talking about and doesn't really know how to communicate to non-postgraduate students about their matter of expertise. So there's like a, a miscommunication, a misunderstanding where the scientist can't get it in terms of the writer who uh, mainly thinks in terms of entertainment and has an English education can understand. And then there's a, a sense of the science becoming a set of shackles that avoid the ability to tell an amazing story. Or even if the writer tells the story well, when the director comes along and the director of photography come along, they think that whatever the writer wrote doesn't look exciting enough on screen, so they try to turn up the intensity until what happens? We break physics. So one thing I've really enjoyed as my work has gotten more known is I got kind of a side gig working with film and television to increase the scientific accuracy of the stories we see told every day. And why I like doing that is because I am also a storyteller. I write. I even write fictional narrative. And so my goal when I work on these projects is not to put a set of shackles on writers, but to show writers and visual effects artists and directors and directors of photography and all the people involved in making movies great, how we can use science to tell consistent and believable and exciting stories that even as they captivate audiences, help people have a deeper, more robust and rounded knowledge of the world that we live in. Um, it's out now, so I feel comfortable saying this. One of the first projects that's hit the, the, the media market that I've worked on, you can catch Friday nights on Disney Plus called WandaVision. I, I got to talk to them a little bit about science. I can't tell you any details of what I did on that project, but I can tell you, uh, I did meet with that team to help them explore some of the ideas in the program. And wow, I'm watching what they put together, and it's really, really, really compelling. And what I know from my vantage point and the work that I do uh, with writers and storytellers on an ongoing basis is that writers and storytellers get it. And they want to do better than they've done in the past in telling these stories because they actually understand the stakes of science literacy in our culture and in our world, and they see the power of stories and in inspiring people in the kind of world we could make together that we all want to live in. I got a little passionate. It's kind that of, was you great. Kind of, you got to ask the question at the heart of like my entire value system. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of WandaVision, Mike, um, so Morgan Harper Nichols on Twitter asked... Or first of all, it was a comment. Love the show. I'm mm -hmm. intrigued by force fields and if that concept is rooted in reality in any way or is it purely fiction? And then there seem to be different kinds. The one in Hunger Games was impenetrable. The one in WandaVision is not. Or is it all purely fictional? So curious. Yeah. So force fields are wild. Um, my favorite force fields are uh, Star Trek. Because by some mechanism that they kind of hand wave with technical jargon in the Star Trek technical manual, a force field, a shield, operates at a certain frequency. And then phasers and photon torpedoes 
act at another frequency, which they're kind of trying to play at something plausible in terms of frequencies and the electromagnetic spectrum. And you have to have uh, basically the two out of phase for the shield to work. And if you you get the magic frequency of the shield to match the phase or the phase that goes right through the shield. Um, and the reason I like that is there's at least some plausibility there. Um, if you take two lasers of the same frequency and same amplitude, and you point them at each other, at the point they meet, their photons collide, they cancel each other out, which lets us see, like you could imagine if you were trying to shoot something with a laser and your target has a sophisticated, sophisticated <laughs> light speed laser array, it could intercept and block your laser, which is kind of what we see in a force field. And... Force fields kind of do exist. The Earth has one. It's called the magnetosphere. So there's this big electromagnetic uh, field emanating primarily from the poles of the Earth. Our, our north and south pole are magnetic poles, like on a magnet, uh, because the Earth has a molten core thanks to the moon kind of tugging on it and batting energy to the Earth-Moon system as it does. And that magnetosphere around the Earth acts as a force field that actually does block and deflect energetic particles coming from the sun. So they are zooming at us at light speed and they get caught in that magnetosphere and either diverted around the earth or kind of channeled in the poles, hence the aurora borealis, the northern lights, right? That's caused by solar particles being channeled by the magnetosphere. That does a lot of cool things. Number one, it lowers the radiation level on the surface of the earth. And number two, um, it keeps our atmosphere from being blown away by the solar wind like happened on Mars, right? Mars used to have a thick atmosphere, and now it has a very thin atmosphere. And that's because over time, the solar winds, all the radiation coming from the sun, blew little bits, little particles of, the sun, of Mars's atmosphere away. The Earth's atmosphere sticks around, not only because of our higher gravity, but also because of the protection of the magnetosphere. It's way, way cool. Right? The ozone layer on the Earth is a force field for ultraviolet radiation, which is why when we lose the ozone, it's such a big deal because more UV radiation makes it to the Earth that way. And UV light is a form of ionizing radiation, it damages the DNA in cells which are struck by UV radiation. What we're learning here is that. All of our reality is composed by a number of different fields. The electromagnetic fields is just one of them. There's another field called the Higgs field, which the Higgs boson is a fundamental particle. And anything that kind of interacts with that field creates an activation and it gets mass. It gets mass and can shape gravity in our universe. So in a very real way, listen to me. Everything in our universe is a force field, right? Because what's happening right here, this hand and this hand, and they collide, we see two solid hands intersecting. It's not what's happening, right? Quantum fluctuations coming out of the Higgs field, out of the electromagnetic field, and other fields in physics are creating field boundaries with no physical contact and only the exchange of virtual and physical particles. Really cool. And like invisible fields made of energy, 
that just kind of block all passage of one thing. That's less plausible. I don't really know a way in physics today that you could pull something like that off. Uh, so be they, you know, Star Trek style force fields uh, or, um, you know, other shows. I won't comment on WandaVision at all. I can't. Uh, but in general, those kind of force fields aren't possible. And all matter is a force field and all magnetic fields are force fields. Uh, you know, the glass in your car is a force field for UV light, just like the steel in your car is a force field for visible light. Wow. That was delightful. Just knowing that we're surrounded by them. We are them. We are them. We are made of force fields. Wow. Um, Mike, so everybody tuning in right now, I'm watching your questions roll in. And Mike, Stephanie Tate asks, Stephanie Tate, is there, Stephanie, is there any possibility that we will see weapons like the blasters of so many sci-fi movies slash shows in our lifetime? Are there people researching or developing anything like that? Sure, absolutely. Um, there's all kinds of skunk works projects in the American military industrial complex to get some kind of advantage. Um, the problem is chemical propellant weapons are <laughs> really efficient and easy to manufacture. Um, the kind of rifling system where we create a closed sealed tube, mostly closed, you put a pellet in it effectively and a cartridge, the cartridge is full of gunpowder, powder, a uh, trigger mechanism strikes that, creates a spark, ignites the gunpowder. All that force has to be expelled forward. It's really easy to make these charges. And so for kind of handheld weapons, the energy density is phenomenal. You can put a lot of energy in gunpowder, right? And it's really easy to channel and it's really reliable. Now, when you look at larger weapon systems, you know, art like our, an artillery shell, it's a really big bullet. Uh, there's movements to bring something out of sci-fi right now. In fact, there's a couple operational, something called railgun. And in a railgun, instead of using a chemical propellant to push a metal um, pellet, you use magnetic energy to propel a large block of metal. And some of these railguns that people have cooked up are... Man, they, they seem like something out of science fiction. They can propel large pieces of metal very long distances with very high accuracy with the small caveat that they have to be powered by a shipboard nuclear reactor because their electrical requirements are enormous. Can you create beams of electromagnetic energy that um, damage whatever they're aimed at? Absolutely. The energy required to get the amplitude and frequency of said systems high enough is so off the charts. The problem is, yes, less how to build the weapon and how to build a portable, reliable, accessible power supply that can feed it. So um, we could absolutely do really fun and interesting and terrifying things with beams of energy, lasers, masers. Uh, we can do that with uh, controlled plasma, magnetically confined plasma. There's all kinds of exotic things. And all these things have to be done like in laboratories with big giant pieces of equipment, right? Like um, there's an attempt to create nuclear fusion 
uh, using lasers in a very large laboratory. Um, and, and those lasers combine to create temperatures higher than the surface of our sun. If you shot that at, at something, it would destroy it. But you need an enormous amount of power to do those kind of things. So I think for the foreseeable future, and frankly, thank goodness, conventional weapons will be the norm because we just don't have the way. It's the same problem we have um, electrifying our grid with electrical cars versus fossil fuel cars. It turns out it's just really easy to store and transport energy in the form of hydrocarbons, in the form of fossil fuels, compared to what it takes to put that in a battery. Batteries take longer to put the energy into. They have to be charged, and they're less energy dense. A charged battery has less energy potential than a tank of gasoline, and it takes hours to fill up instead of five minutes. We face a very similar problem when it comes to you know, chemical propellant weapons versus any kind of next generation platform. I can't believe I know any of that. Actually, this this question surprised me that I had an answer. <laughs> That's really funny, Mike. As always, uh, I think it might be time for some some ads. All right, let's keep the lights on. We'll be right back. Yeah. Well, the Cozy Rock program is a pop. <laughs> I'm so glad this is us with this ad. <laughs> Something didn't catch when I shifted mental gears there. The Cozy Robot Show is a program that's brought to you by you. As you can see now, it takes a whole team of people to make this program happen. We work all week to try to put together a dynamic and compelling experience for you that helps us learn about the world through empathetic skepticism. And we're trying to create something special here, which is a community, not just like a program. So we have a private Discord community available to the Cozy Robots. That's people who financially support this show at literally any level including a buck. And uh, we do all kind of fun things together. We've got a book club where we meet a few times every month to go through books together. We do video game streams every week following the show. We have an after party that's tons of fun. It's becoming the highlight of my week. Uh, we get together and we play games together. We have guests come in for that. We even have community-led events now where people facilitate and create their own events, do things together. I think of it like the internet without the toxicity because people share their creativity they share their feelings, uh, they share their dreams, they share their hopes, and what they get in response is support and affirmation instead of cynicism and trolling. So we'd love to have you be a part of the Cozy Robots. You can join us by going to CozyRobots.com. This week, we'd also like to talk to you about BetterHelp. 2020 was a tough year, and 2021 is starting off with a bang. And uh, it can be helpful to talk to a licensed professional about the challenges we face just getting through life today. And BetterHelp is simply the easiest and most convenient way I know of to get mental health support. They've got licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationship challenges, sleep issues, trauma, anger management and anger conflict resolution, family conflicts, LGBTQIA matters and issues, grief, self-esteem, and best of all, BetterHelp is perfectly adopted for this era of social distancing because you are meeting with your counselor via text chat or text messages, phone calls or video calls. And 
they find your therapist for you. When you go to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots, you'll fill out a short questionnaire and then they will connect you with a counselor you're going to love. And if for any reason that relationship doesn't work, BetterHelp will find you another counselor for no additional cost. So Cozy Robots can get 10% off their first month service by going to betterhelp.com slash Cozy Robots. So why not get started with the support you need today? I have to click so many buttons to go to the ad. So that's... (laughs) That's what happened. Click, 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 click. Oh, the camera's already on. So confusing. (laughs) Thanks for bearing with us. It's a live show. (laughs) It's a live show. Um, Mike, the rest of our time, I think, might end up being dedicated to the movie Interstellar. So anyone who's just coming in, spoiler alert, get out while you can or pause it. Uh, Come back later after you've watched the movie. Um, But... Okay, so interstellar questions. Here we go. Um, Real Daniel Kiss on Instagram asks, is the bookshelf scene in Interstellar speculative or scientifically solid? Oh, wow. Okay, so start at the climax of the film. <laughs> um, I love the bookcase scene, also sometimes called the Tesseract scene in Interstellar. Um, Why? It was an attempt to depict what happened when someone crossed the event horizon of a black hole. Black holes are a big deal in physics because they are singularities. And a singularity is the word physicists and cosmologists use to describe a phenomenon that breaks physics. So when you combine all the best insights and all the validated models and hypothetical models in physics and cosmology, and you go back to the beginning of space-time in our universe, you get a singularity, meaning when we try to model it, everything breaks. And when you try to do that with a black hole, a black hole is an arrangement of matter so dense that it creates a gravitational field so intense that light can't get out anymore. It's an incredible amount of gravitational energy, gravitational pressure, gravitational acceleration. And the event horizon is that boundary that if light crosses this point, it can't get back out. And there's all kind of weird stuff that I won't talk about now because I suspect we'll have more questions and I don't want to spoil them. (laughs) But um, weird stuff happens as you get close to a black hole. And when you cross it, what happens? No one has any idea. There's all kinds of theories about what might be inside a black hole. Uh, Some people think that they might be gateways to other universes. And by people, I mean physicists. Some physicists may uh, believe that they are um, wormholes that can be used to travel to different places in space, perhaps even space-time. Well, it's always space-time, but I mean radically different coordinates on the temporal axis of space-time. We'll unpack that in a future question, I'm sure. (laughs) Anyway, and then some people listen to this. They look at the math and they say, I think what's in a black hole, in every black hole, is our universe. Think about that. Imagine like you had uh, some Russian dolls and you opened a Russian doll and there was a blue doll inside it. 
And then you took that out and you opened the blue doll and it was the red doll that contained the other one and it just goes on forever. <laughs> the thing contains the other thing itself. That's a that's a plausible theory in physics about what's inside a black hole. So what I really appreciated about the film Interstellar, which was a partnership of Chris Nolan and Kit Thorne. Now, some film buffs may say, like, partnership, what? Kip Thorne is an incredibly renowned theoretical physicist, a contemporary of both Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking. And uh, Chris Nolan went to Kip Thorne and said, how, you know, I want to nail the science on this film in some really key places. And if there's any place scientifically, you can take some storytelling liberty in uh, a narrative, it's if you go inside a black hole. Because any physicist who's honest with you will say, we don't know what happens in there. The physics inside a black hole are unknown to us. And in a very real way, that means kind of like anything's up for grabs. Anything is possible. So I really appreciated putting the most fantastical moments of that movie, frankly, the ones that the most twisted and distorted our understanding of reality and causality itself inside of a black hole. Now, there's a small problem here. The fact that uh, the protagonist of the film made it across the boundary of an event horizon in one piece is not very believable. You would be radically altered in space-time uh, near the event horizon of a black hole. You would not survive the experience. But if by some mechanism with fancy <laughs> a fancy robot co-pilot, you were able to do some maneuver that, to my understanding, is impossible, yeah, a Tesseract is as likely as anything else for what we'd find inside a black hole. Mike, um, what's so funny is that you're giving this wonderful explanation and I'm looking at all the questions and you kind of answered all the interstellar questions that I got. <laughs> like I Then let me riff you, on two things interstellar, okay? Okay. Because there's some amazing things in interstellar. One is that whenever we see... Um, a depiction in film of a wormhole. You see like a portal, like a door you could walk through, but a wormhole isn't a hole in two dimensional space. Let me, I don't even have like a sheet of paper, but you know what a sheet of paper is. I don't have to show you a sheet of paper. So I want you to imagine I'm holding a sheet of paper and then I folded the sheet of paper in on itself. And then I took a pencil and stuck it through the piece of paper, right? You now have a wormhole in two dimensional space, piece of paper, is a good proxy for two-dimensional space. And if I unfolded it, right, you'd have a hole in two-dimensional space. But the space we live in isn't two-dimensional. We have three spatial dimensions. So if you cut a hole in three-dimensional space, you don't get a circle, you get a sphere. And I loved, I mean, I, I cried out in the theater when they pulled up on a wormhole and it was a sphere, because I was like, yes, finally, yes, <laughs> somebody really modeled a, a, a sphere well. And I don't like spoilers, so I didn't study a lot of the movie before I saw it. And I learned afterwards that uh, they did incredibly high fidelity mathematical models related to how to depict a wormhole and how to depict a black hole. Those weren't high watermarks for cinema. Those were high watermarks for scientific visualization. The work in that film was submitted as a paper for peer review in the scientific community on those two points. 
I thought it was fun and interesting the way they played with general and special relativity. Uh, time doesn't flow at a uniform rate in our universe. It varies based on how fast you're going as a percentage of the speed of light, as well as how steep a gravity well you are. And I love the way they played with the relative passage of time at different levels of gravitational acceleration in that film. And the fact that somebody sat down and did the math and built at least a plausible model of how that could work, which made me even more disappointed when somehow they had rocket ships constantly taking off and landing on all these planets in all these steep gravity wells and no explanation of where the fuel was coming from or where the fuel was stored because this didn't appear to be some kind of radical next-generation physics, new physics that were powering the ships. They seemed to have exhaust plumes like any rocket, which means it was Newtonian physics. Every action has an equal and opposite what? Reaction. And the fact that these ships were in steep gravity wells and somehow had enough fuel to burn back out and were like roughly airplane sized. I couldn't believe they did all that work to like abandon one of the most fundamental problems in space travel is how to handle the fact that you can't refuel. If you can imagine what it would be like to go from, gosh, from New York to Los Angeles in the United States, but without any gas stations, what if you had to pull all your gas with you? Well, you'd have to get like gas tanks and then it gets so heavy, you'd need to pull a trailer and put gas tanks on those. But then that adds more weight and it takes more fuel and it becomes this cycle where the amount of fuel you're carrying and the size of the vessel gets bigger and bigger. Why? To hold all the gas. That's why when you look at a rocket that leaves the earth, there's a tiny little capsule with people in it on this big giant rocket. It's just full of propellant. And the fact that a movie... <laughs> You know, gave us a new state of the art in visualizing a black hole. Did it cover the basics of rocket equations? Was really frustrating for me. But hats off uh, to Chris Nolan for um, having the foresight to include a visionary like Kip Thorne in a Hollywood film. And thank you for indulging me and in riffing all that stuff because that you know it's a fun film to talk about if you're into cosmology. I absolutely loved hearing all that stuff. I, I never even considered that you need, yeah, you would need to bring all your fuel with you. Otherwise, how are you going to, that just never occurred to me. Incredible. Mm -hmm. It's the fundamental um, challenge in space travel. Oh, and here's the other thing. You don't have brakes in space. You just have inertia. You just keep going. There's no atmosphere to slow you down. There's no ground to coast on. So you have to accelerate to get where you're going. When you get to the halfway point, you have to turn around and do opposite thrust to slow back down. Otherwise, when you get to the plant you're trying to get to, you'll fly past it or crash into it. So, I mean, oh, there's all wow. kind of crazy stuff in orbital mechanics, which is what that's called. Um, it's wild. Wow. Well, I have another wild question, and it will be the last one for the night, most probably. Okay. Um, Cody Kaiser on Twitter asks, are lightsabers possible? Please say yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I saw a YouTube video that I really enjoyed where someone made a lightsaber um, and it looks like a lightsaber if you hold the camera at just such a level so you don't see the end of it it does look like a, a pillar of light it's actually a, 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 a tightly tuned flow of plasma 
which is kind of lightsaber like. I mean, in the video, they cut stuff up with it, and it's it's plasma is a is a state of matter. It's electrically charged gas, so much thermal ener energy that electrons fly loose. Um, like the surface of the sun is a plasma, and um, and so you hold it and it looks cool, and it, just, it doesn't go. It goes. It's kind of torch. But if you look back, it's got like a big backpack and a big fuel tank. <laughs> and if someone else had one and you swung them at each other, the beams would just pass through one another and you'd, you'd just burn each other horribly. The thing that lightsabers depict is not only a beam of energy, which is pretty plausible, but it's a strong beam of energy coming out of a single small handle. Remember how much tonight we've talked about energy and how to store energy and how much energy can pack into a, a given space called energy density. We just don't know of a lot of things in physics that could contain the energy levels we see depicted in film in a lightsaber, cutting through big blast doors, cutting through human flesh instantly, things like that, in that small a space. We can imagine some things, uh, but they're so far beyond, you know, maybe we could make a tiny little fusion reactor somehow that was self-sustaining. Then we're going to need some hydrogen, some nuclear fuel. Like, there's a lot of stuff to resolve here. And even if you did it, you're not going to have the beams hit each other. Even if you were using, like, a literal plasma beam somehow with a very exotic magnetic field containing it, they're not going to strike against each other. So um, you can make cool energy swords that cut things. To my knowledge in physics, you can't make cool energy swords that you can have a sword fight with that includes a block <laughs> because uh, that's just not how particle physics works, unfortunately. Biggest bummer of my science film questions, I'm sure. So many people are like, no, what? It's a really <laughs> big bummer. That's terrible. Well, now they have to prove you wrong and make a lightsaber. Uh, you know what? That's that's true. And I will say, in defense of scientists and engineers alike, we often say things are impossible, and then somebody does it. So that can happen. It's one of the most amazing things about the human spirit in general. Wow. That's awesome. That's really awesome. <laughs> Great, um, so we've, Mike. We've, sorry, oh, I was going to say we probably have time for one more. All right, this one, oh, Mike, okay, I'm going to throw it your way. Sean J. Stevens on Twitter asks, I'd love to hear a breakdown of the likelihood of ever actually achieving time travel and which universe might have the best science to support it, i.e. X-Men, Back to the Future, Doctor Who, all these things. Uh, which time travel rules are more likely or most likely to apply? Okay, great question. We totally understand time travel is not exotic in physics. We understand the mechanisms by which time travel can occur. Premise number one, and this is important, you are traveling through time right now. You are traveling through time right now. Time and space are a single thing called space-time in our Einsteinian understanding of physics. So you exist at uh, the intersection of three uh, spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension, three dimensions of space, one dimension of time. And you're like, well, so what? Yeah, we all travel forward through time. That's not exciting. Well, we can travel through time at different rates. If you go get on an airplane, 
and I stay on the ground and you move faster than me and our reference frame compared, guess what? Time slows down just a tiny bit for you, right? Airplanes aren't that fast, 500 miles an hour maybe, 400, 600 when they're really fast. Uh, well, okay, let's say you get in um, a spacecraft orbiting the Earth. Well, now you're going to be going 17,000 miles an hour plus. And now that time dilation gets more significant. It gets so significant, in fact, that when scientists created the Global Positioning System satellites, those things are whizzing around the Earth so fast, their software has to accommodate for relativistic drift. <laughs> Like, if we didn't account for the fact that time is going at a different speed on Earth and in the satellites and for the satellites at different orbits, GPS wouldn't work. It's wild. GPS satellites, in a very real way, are traveling through time, just like people on the International Space Station. Well, as you get faster, time gets weirder, right? So if you start going some significant fraction of light speed, like more than half light speed, which is extremely difficult. But let's say we figured it out. Let's say more than half. Let's say, let's say you get to 90%, 95% the speed of light. This time dilation would get intense to the point that you might experience, say, oh, I don't know, two or three years on a spaceship. And if you flew away at that speed and then flew back at that speed, when you got home, Hundreds or thousands of years would have passed on the Earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds like time travel to me. And remember we talked about how time got stretched with interstellar because of gravity? If you flew into a close orbit with a black hole and then back out, you would experience a similar level of time dilation, where more time would pass outside that gravity well than within it. Meaning... If you can build a spacecraft either fast enough or able to get close enough to a black hole, you can absolutely travel forward in time, maybe potentially meeting your great, 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 great grandchildren. That's time travel. It's in physics. That's not theoretical, right? The science is done. The engineering is a problem. <laughs> like To build a spacecraft that can accelerate that quickly right now is wildly beyond what we can do with our technology, but we understand the science of it. Now, what about traveling backwards in time? That one's harder. There is a theoretical path to traveling back in time and building a time machine. Here's what it would look like. Number one, we'd have to go from wormholes being something that are theoretical in physics to demonstrated in physics, and then have the ability to make a wormhole large enough for a human person to pass through. That's a huge lift, both in physics and engineering. But let's assume that's possible. So imagine you build a wormhole gate. We know they're going to be spheres, right? Because they're holes in three-dimensional space. So you have one on the ground, and you put another one on a really fast spaceship, and you turn them on. Woo! right? Very cool. And then you take that spaceship, and like we talked about, you have it take off and fly away from the Earth and go a significant fraction of light speed for a long time. And then turn around and come back and get an orbit around the Earth. 
Well, now those wormholes are close to each other in space, but far away from each other in space-time, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years, to the point that if you pass through the wormhole from the spacecraft onto the Earth, you'd go back in time. And if you walk through the wormhole on Earth and out on the spacecraft, you'd go forward in time, whatever duration was dilated by that trip based on the speed of light. That would be a real time machine. Like an honest to goodness, you can cross a gap of tens or hundreds or thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of years with one restriction. Your time machine can't take you back in time to before it was made. <laughs> so, yes, traveling forward in time, very well established in physics. Traveling back in time actually is plausible, um, but not really. Uh, <laughs> not in the case where we would be going back before the time machine was made. Now, which fictional universe has the best depiction of time machines or time travel there? Um, any, any story that shows effectively the past and the future as interdependent but not changeable. So the back to the future thing where you go back in time, you change something, it changes the future, not plausible. Anything where there's a loop between past and future actually is plausible in physics and maintains causality. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Is this like the lightsabers thing where it's like we haven't figured out how to go back in time before the time machine? And we might, <laughs> or is this like a rule? Like there is no going back in time before the time. There's no built. understanding in physics today that you could go back in time before a time machine. Now, we don't understand, we don't have a universal theory of physics, a unified understanding of reality, and we're in search for one. So it may be that we come across some physics that facilitate it. But as we understand the universe today, no, there would be no way to go back before a time machine was made. But you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> in science? That's what I'm hearing, Victory. Yeah. Nothing, nothing in science. Nothing is zero or 100%, although we get very close right. to both in what we call asymptotic values, Cloaching, but approaching but never reaching those values. I can't believe oh. people stuck around for this nerdy an episode. <laughs> I can. That I can. It was very compelling. It was very compelling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we're all here it was so for. So good. Yeah, for real. I guess me watching all those movies and reading all those books about cosmology paid off tonight. So mm -hmm. <laughs> glad everybody had a I good did. time. Yeah. Well, we're glad you all joined us. So glad. And uh, we'll be back next week. We'd love to see you at the after party in. 10, 15 minutes after the end of the show, I'll show up. We'll have a good time. And I'd like you to know that the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot, the people who make this show possible. I'd like to thank Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine, our show's producers. Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg wrote and recorded the theme song, production support by Andrew Galecki, social media management by Grace Vaughn, designed by Sydney Smith, Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design, Jesse Lane. Interiors, wardrobe stylist and craft services, Gina McCarg. 
Thank you all for joining us. We've had so much fun talking to you. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.